um, we're going to continue in our teaching series in Galatians called No Other Gospel. Last Sunday we looked at Paul's main point, kind of what he was driving at in chapters 3 and 4, kind of culminates in his main point in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This is where he exhorts the believers in the Galatian churches to stand firmly upon the gospel and to never resubmit to a yoke of slavery by how? Going back to the law for justification. And we talked about how the law creates a lose-lose-lose situation for all who seek to be justified through it. They lose their freedom. Uh, they lose the person and work of Jesus Christ and they lose divine grace. This is what we talked about last Sunday. As we transition to the next section, uh, we need to know something here, and that's that these brothers that Paul was writing to, these really brothers and sisters in the Lord in these churches, um, I think that the majority of them were under the impression that the Judaizers had showed up to try to help them understand the gospel, uh, to help them live the Christian life, to better develop their theology and these sorts of things. So this is, this is the mindset of these Galatian churches. They think that Judaizers are there to help. And in the next section, Paul just, he just annihilates these false teachers. He literally just annihilates them. He describes what false teachers like the Judaizers actually do. They're not a blessing. They're not a help. Uh, they don't come in the name of the Lord. And uh, he, he describes this, and, and he even exhorts these brothers, or at least teaches them how to rightly respond to false teachers, like the Judaizers. And we're going to begin a little two-part mini-series here within this broader series called Six Characteristics of False Teachers. We're going to look at the first three today, and then we'll focus on the remaining three uh, probably this coming Sunday or the Sunday after because I've got a big wedding I've got to focus on this week, uh, Lord willing. But we'll deal with the first three now and the first, second, uh, second set of three later. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn over to Galatians 5. We're going to focus on verses 7 through 9 today. This section where we look at false teachers is really verses 7 through 12, but we'll just look at the first half today. You can literally draw out a characteristic from each verse. We can pick up where we left off last Sunday and look at the first characteristic of false teachers. Number one, they hinder believers from obeying the truth. They hinder believers from obeying the truth, and we see this in the very first line of this text, verse 7, where Paul says, this is the very next thing he says, after unpacking his main point, he says, to them you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And really, what we have here is probably of of the whole book, the whole letter, the whole epistle, we have probably the most practical section of all. There's no illusions or illustrations or analogy or anything. It's just straightforward stuff here. And he opens this very, very practical section 
with a phrase that depicts a race, doesn't it? You were running well. Pay attention to that. You were running well. You know, this is how the Apostle Paul saw the Christian faith or the Christian life. He saw it as a race. He saw it as something that, that believers run. And it's not the 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. It's long-range running. It requires stamina and energy, and you got to be fit to do this. It's a, it's a race. And he uses the same illustration in 1 Corinthians 9.24 and in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. It's where he talks about the Christian life being a race. So, so it's important for us to understand this morning that, that being a Christian is like being a runner. You're, you're a runner in a race. You're an athlete, so to speak. Now the question is, how do we run this race? We know how to run regular races, right? You get up there and the starter pistol goes off and you take off. If you're like me, you come in last place especially when you wear boots, kind of hard to run in, but I can do it if I'm under threat. How, how do we run this race? We know how to run regular races. How do we run the race of the Christian faith, the Christian life? Maybe we could ask this question. Does it just have to do with just, just living as a Christian? Is that, is that what we're talking about here? Does running this race just have to do with just living as a Christian? And if that's the case, then, then how do we cross the finish line and, and complete the race, right? Because if I'm, if I'm having to run here, as Paul says, then what, what, when do I know that I'm, I'm done and I'm finished with it? I want you to listen to 2 Timothy 4.7. In context, the Romans were about to execute Paul, and he knew it. He knew that, that he was facing imminent death. He knew that it would come any day or any week. And he says this to Timothy. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now listen carefully. I have kept the faith. There it is. Paul tells Timothy that he, he had ran his race and that he was finishing or had finished his race by keeping the faith. That's how you run the race. That's how you finish the race, by keeping the faith. We run this race by keeping the faith, and we finish this race by keeping the faith. It's synonymous. The running and the keeping all the way to the end, that's the running and that's the finish. What does it mean to keep the faith? Well, I'm, you could simply say that it just means that you continue to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really that simple. It would be continuing on in the gospel. That's what it would mean. It has to do with believing what the Bible says about Christ and trusting in his person and finished work for our salvation. From start, that would be regeneration. To finish, that would be glorification. 
You run from the moment you're regenerated to the moment that you step into glory. From the moment of spiritual life when it is given in that regeneration to the moment that that comes to an end on this side of glory and then you step into glory. Or, and that would be death, or when Jesus returns, which I'd be fine with. You say to yourself, well, I don't want him to come. There's people that need to get saved. Guess what? By the time he comes, everyone that's going to need to be saved is going to be saved. So we pray for him to return. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's believing and believing unto death or unto the return of Jesus Christ. If we are believers and we continue to believe and trust in the Lord all the way unto death, we have run our race and we have finished our race. And that race ends. And I love the fact that it ends because I think some of us, if not all of us, feel like being a Christian is, it's, there's a lot of pressure there and there's a lot of struggle and you get winded and you get knocked off course and we'll talk about that, right? It's tough. Anyone who says that, that becoming or being a Christian is easy is an imbecile that doesn't know what it's like to be a Christian because it's, it's not a simple thing. It's a race that we run with a zillion distractions along the sidelines telling us to take a turn here. That's the meaning of 2 Timothy 4.7. You run and you cross the finish line. It's all through belief. Now, in the Galatian churches, the believers had no trouble running the race at first. They had no issues with believing the gospel and, and, and staying in Christ. The issues arose when the Judaizers showed up. They were like false competitors in this race. What they did was they began to twist Paul's teachings by adding works of the law to faith for justification. They foisted circumcision upon the brothers and made much of those who approved of their teachings and, and circumcision, and they made very little of those who disapproved. Galatians 4.17. Basically, what I'm telling you is that what they did was they, you've got the gospel and, and you've got justification, which comes by faith alone. Well, they had added circumcision to faith for justification. It was a, a Jesus plus something else kind of false gospel they were preaching. And I think, unfortunately, there were some Galatians that thought they were there to help, and they, you know, well, I'm a Gentile, I'm not circumcised, but if this is what it takes to be justified, well, find me a rabbi. They were, these Judaizers, false teachers, were hindering these churches. That's a word that Paul uses. They were hindering these churches by adding to the truth, which made it harder and harder for these believers to obey the actual gospel and run their own individual races. See, they were running just fine, marathon, booking it, doing good, making good time. And then all of a sudden, these guys come running up alongside of them and steer them away from the truth with a false gospel, which hindered their running. They were, in a sense, knocking these Galatian believers off course with their perverted false gospel. And this is what false teachers do. This is what they do. They add theological concoctions that hinder and knock us off course. That's what they're attempting to do, even today. 
If they're not adding theological concoctions through horrific hermeneutics and interpretation of Scripture, if they're not doing that, then what they're doing is the opposite. They're subtracting biblical doctrines from orthodoxy, from Scripture. Doctrines like sin, doctrines like repentance, Right? What I'm talking about is when you hear somebody preaching and, and they leave those things out, that's a type of false teaching. And why, why do they do this? Why do, why do false teachers subtract doctrines like sin and repentance? Why? To make the gospel more palatable for sinners. And this, this kind of perversion, it, it produces a similar effect. It hinders people from obeying the truth they end up submitting to a false gospel of cheap grace, easy believism, and costless discipleship. They prayed the prayer of salvation. They accept Jesus into their heart, which is nowhere found in Scripture, and now they're going to heaven. And they just carry on through life as if nothing ever happened. But I'll tell you what, they can go back to that moment of decision I remember when I prayed that prayer, gave my life to Jesus. Do you live for him now? Not really, but I remember that time. A.W. Tozer once said, It is my opinion that tens of thousands of people, if not millions, have been brought into some kind of religious experience by accepting Christ, and they have not been saved. If your Christian conversion did not reverse the direction of your life, if it did not transform it, then you are not converted at all. You are simply a victim of the accept Jesus heresy. Wow. Now here's the deal. We don't typically think of false teachers. We don't think of regular men in regular pulpits and regular churches. But if they're leaving out sin and repentance or, 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 or adding theological concoctions, they're just, they're just in the same camp. And we don't typically think of normal preachers in this way. When we think of cults, we typically think of Mormonism and Jehovah Witnessism or false teaching. That's what we think of. That's what comes to mind, right? And, and those, those cults, they were founded by bona fide false teachers. There's no doubt. Joseph Smith, false teacher. Charles Taze Russell, false teacher. And those movements today, those cultish false teaching movements, they are being perpetuated by false teachers today. But we need to be careful not to limit the scope of what we're talking about to just those cults. There are literally, and I say this with, with love in my heart, there are false teachers everywhere. Everywhere. In denominational and non-denominational churches. They're all over the place. And not, not to pick on one movement in particular, because we have folks that have come out of it, but I, I would say one of the highest expressions of false teachers in any kind of movement that we see today would be in the charismatic movement. I mean, it's vivid. I know I say a lot about the charismatic movement, but um, I feel like it's so prevalent. In fact, I think it's the number one or fastest growing religion or whatever you want to call it in the whole world today next to Islam. So I think it needs to be addressed over and over and over, especially since it's so popular. 
especially in this community. But boy, you can see it there. You know, that movement has its false apostles. There's no apostles today, but it has its apostles. It has its false teachers who, who spread the, the swill of phony supernatural phenomena, fake tongues, fake miracles, fake revivals, fake prophecies, fake visions. And of course, you've got to add to the pile here, fake health and wealth. Why do they do this? To get people through their doors and to get them locked in. That's why they do it. These charlatans promise their congregations endless blessings if the people will what? Give, give, give. It's all about the giving. And, and meanwhile, while they're making all these empty false promises on all these blessings people will have if they give, 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 while they're doing all this, they and their wives and their children are driving super expensive cars, living in the lap of luxury. That may sound cruel for me, but if you just open your eyes and look around, why don't you do a little research on some of the pastors in our community and how they live their lives? It's unbelievable. MacArthur rightly calls that whole movement, it's just a big old Ponzi scheme. And that's really what it is. Now, I think that if more people took the time to read books, even from MacArthur, like Charismatic Chaos or Strange Fire, if they read these resources, or maybe if they even just took two hours to watch American Gospel, the documentary, if they watched that or read those books, their eyes would become opened and there would be far less people getting lured into this stuff. But you see, once you're in it, you think it's true and you think it's right, and you don't really want to challenge it. In fact, you get offended when people challenge it, don't you? I know what it's like. Now, we need to understand something here. There is a difference between being a false teacher and being one who makes mistakes in the pulpit. Okay, not everyone who makes a mistake in the pulpit is a false teacher. If that were the case, you're listening to a false teacher. Because I and every man who's ever preached the word with the exception of Jesus Christ has made a mistake in the pulpit. This happens. The best men are men at best. Amen? Amen. Mistakes are made. And, and some, of the, some of the mistakes that are made are just, just huge, and some of them are really minuscule. My issues usually deal with chronology and trying to get the, you know, the flow of things right. And there's been times where I've corrected and come in the next week and say, by the way, I spent about two minutes last week talking about this. The order is reversed. It happens. There's a difference between making a chronological mistake and making a mistake in the person of Jesus. If I, get, if I foul up a timeline, that's different than saying he's not God. Okay, th th those are two completely different kinds of errors. There is a difference between a false teacher and one who makes mistakes in the pulpit. Everyone who preaches the word makes mistakes from time to time. And, and the thing that separates the false teacher from the true teacher is not just his teaching, since all teachers make mistakes. It is his correctability. There's where the difference lies. 
The false teacher does not receive correction when he teaches falsely. He won't even listen to it. He will dismiss you and say, you're nuts. He'll say, you have a spirit of religion. They won't even listen to you. They won't take correction. They spurn it. They just throw it away. They're not interested in your correction. False teachers reject correction, and they usually blame the accuser, and then they continue on with their false teachings. A true teacher, however, will accept correction. And I have to be honest, it's not always right up front that they'll accept it. But if they have the spirit of the Bereans, which a teacher is supposed to have, and they go analyze the word, they're going to come back around and tell that saint, you were absolutely right. Give me 17 lashings. They won't say that, but they'll say you were right. But they will accept correction. They will fix their theology. They will modify their messages to incorporate the truth, right? They will throw out the error. And, and, and in many cases, that, that guy that taught falsely on accident, he's actually a true teacher, he'll not only accept correction, but he will apologize for his mistakes. He'll make sure his people that he's preaching to know that he made a mistake and he's sorry about that. Because let me tell you something right now. When something, if you're a preacher and something is brought to your mind where you weren't, you, you taught some error or you weren't completely accurate on something, it's pretty heartbreaking for you to find that out. Because you want to stand in this pulpit and preach the word as perfectly as you can. You want to bring God glory. You want his people to be built up. You want unsaved people to be saved. This, this, you want God to be glorified. And, and if, if I know or a preacher knows that, that we had inadvertently attacked that, it's heartbreaking. And sometimes you just, I don't even want to do this anymore. That's how you feel. That's the true heart. That's the true attitude. That's a King David kind of response. But the false teacher just says, you're out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. How long have you been a Christian? Eight years? I've been one for nine. I'm way better than you. You have a spirit of religion. You're, you're, you, you stir up dissension, and you're a, div a divisive or divisive person, and you know, they make up all this stuff and put about a thousand labels on you. You have 150 genders. Now, they didn't go that far, but, you know. I mean, they just make up things. That's what our culture does today. It just labels everyone. If they don't like you, they just label you. And that's what false teachers do. Well, you know, you just you have a spirit of religion. Some of you in this room have been told this when you challenged a false teacher. It's happened. But a true teacher will accept correction, not always right up front, but eventually they'll apologize, they'll make the adjustments. And one that, that comes to mind would be Augustine, or some of you call him Augustine. I like Augustine. When he was in his 70s and preparing for the end of his life, and he actually died four years after he completed these writings that I'm going to talk about, he's in his 70s. He doesn't know he's going to die in four years, but he did die four years later. I think he was probably about 76 when he died, but toward the end of his life, he goes back and rereads everything that he had ever written. City of God, which is like a thousand pages. It would take me the rest of my life to read that. Amen? Confessions, you name it. 
he goes back and he rereads everything <clears throat> with a couple of purposes in mind. He wants to examine his theological growth from the moment of impact when he gets saved and begins his ministry unto death. He wants to look and see and trace the growth, but he also wants to go back and correct any and all the errors that he made throughout the decades. That's amazing. Most guys today don't even want to know they've made mistakes. This guy goes back and says, man, I'm at a point now in my life where my life is coming to an end and I've tried to glorify God the best that I can, but I need to go back and make sure that what I've written is accurate because I suspect that through the years of growth, I'd have a little different take on something here. Well, he goes back and does this and this work became known as the retractions. It's like retraction in Latin. And it lists 93 titles and it contains 232 chapters. I think every minister who would ever do this would hope there'd be like one or two chapters. This guy hit a grand slam, 232 chapters. This is how much revising he had to do. And I'll tell you what, Augustine's quest to test and correct his own writings, it shows something about him. It proves something, doesn't it? The man was a true teacher. The man was a true teacher. And I think we have an even better example than Augustine. We have a better example in a man by the name of Apollos. Apollos. He made errors. He taught falsely. He was this early gospel preacher, but really what he was preaching was the baptism of John the Baptist. And, and, and this, is a, this is a circuit preacher for the church who's going out and preaching, and, and, and he, he kind of stops short in his preaching. It's based on ignorance, but he stops short of the actual gospel while thinking he's doing a pretty good job. And then two more mature believers come along, Aquila and Priscilla, and they lovingly corrected him and unpacked what he needed to know, and what did he do? You have a spirit of religion. Hit the road. Kick rocks. Well, that's not what he did. What did he do? He humbly accepted their correction, right? He adjusted his theology, changed his preaching, changed his message, and he ultimately becomes a great help and powerful preacher of Scripture. Acts chapter 18, verses 24 to 28. Paulus' response shows that he was a true teacher of God's Word. If he had told Aquila and Priscilla, you have a spirit of religion, you need to go and repent, this is on you, he would have proved to be otherwise, wouldn't he have? But no, he did the exact right thing. This was a man who was genuinely regenerated, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, an actual believer who had repented, had faith, he was out there preaching, his gospel was off, they fixed his gospel, his gospel was on, he becomes a powerful preacher in the church. That's a true teacher, that's what they do. The difference between false teachers and true teachers lies not just in their teachings, but in their ability to be corrected. If a man teaches serious error, like he denies the Trinity, he's probably a false teacher. You know, before a man even gets into the pulpit, he better have those core doctrines down, for heaven's sake. You don't necessarily have to be correctable or not correctable to be qualified here as a false teacher or a true teacher when you get those major distinctions in the Christian faith wrong. 
You're probably a false teacher. And if you go to somebody like that who does get the Trinity wrong or does get the Godhead wrong or does get the deity of Christ wrong and you correct them and they humbly accept that correction, first you'd say, I don't think you should be preaching yet. Wait 10 more years. But at least they're showing some signs of being something there if they receive that correction. But if they tell you, no, I do not believe that God is triune and all, that's a false teacher. That's a false teacher. Now, the most effective way to determine if a person is a false teacher is to test their doctrine and teachings against Scripture and see how they respond to loving correction. That's the best way to test. If they accept that, they teach falsely and they accept that correction and begin to teach truthfully, then they appear to be a true teacher, maybe. But if they reject it and continue to spread false teachings, that's a false teacher, hands down. The Judaizers proved to be false teachers by their message, not just their message, but also by their response to apostolic correction. And when I say apostolic, I mean literal apostles correcting them and them denying that correction. They taught a false gospel of justification by faith plus works. And when they were corrected by Paul and Barnabas at Syrian Antioch, they rejected Paul and Barnabas' correction. They spurned it. They said, you guys are nuts. You have a spirit of religion. Kick rocks. They also rejected the council's correction at Jerusalem. Remember when the Jerusalem council assembled to figure out how to deal with Gentiles and whether circumcision ought to be added or not, and their ruling was absolutely not. Circumcision is not part of the gospel. That's the letter they send out, and the Judaizers are going around trying to poison these churches after the letter is in circulation. In fact, there were Judaizers at the council. They rejected apostolic correction. Their message and the rejection of correction thus proves that they were false teachers. They were the false teachers who were knocking the Galatians off course. They were the false teachers who were hindering the Galatians from obeying the truth, from running the race, and so on. Uh, secondly, false teachers teach persuasions that are not from Christ. Verse 8 Paul says it like this, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. I like how the Apostle Paul calls the Judaizers' teaching, teachings, he calls it the persuasion. You see, the, the gospel is not a persuasion. It's not a persuasive message. We don't use persuasion when we present it. We just present it. False teachings from false teachers are persuasions that run contrary to the gospel. The Greek word for persuasion is pace, monet, and it can be translated as to convince. This use here of this Greek noun, it shows that Paul wasn't just concerned with their message from the Judaizers, that message. He was concerned about their methodology and how they presented it. The Judaizers were utilizing persuasive speech to try to convince the Galatians to embrace their legalistic false gospel. Paul is saying that their, their message and their method is not from the one who calls, which is obviously Christ. Christ is 
the caller. You need to understand right now, you are not the caller. Christ is the caller. He is the one who initially calls us. We answer. We don't call him. Even when we call out to him for salvation, he's already called us. He is the caller. He is the sovereign caller. He calls his people unto himself. He is the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name. And what do they do? They hear his voice and they come to him. John 10, verses 11 through 16. As I said, if we call upon Christ to save us, we are simply answering his call. He calls, we answer. John 15, 16. John 15, 16 is an interesting verse where he tells the disciples, you didn't choose me, I, I chose you. That means he's the caller. He's the chooser. And his choosing of you took place long before this world was ever created. He's the caller. You need to understand something about his call. It is effectual. The one whom he calls is literally given a new heart, given the gifts of repentance and faith, and they turn from disbelief and put their trust in the caller in Christ. And there are too many verses to list that establish these doctrinal truths. Romans 8, 30, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give them a new heart. 2 Timothy 2, 25, Ephesians 2, 8, where he talks about grace and faith as a gift. That way no man can boast. When Christ calls, it's with an effectual call. It comes with power and it transforms that dead sinner. It raises them to life. It makes them a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. need to understand there is no persuading in this call. Christ doesn't call upon spiritually dead sinners and beg them to believe or persuade them to believe or uh, manipulate them into believing or compulse them into believing. Nobody comes into Christ or into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming against their own will. Their lives, their hearts, their minds are changed, their wills are changed, and they willfully and freely and with all the joy in the world, they come unto him. They pursue him. He's the caller. This whole thing that we're talking about with his call, because Paul brings it up, it's a miracle, and it is an act of sovereign grace. And because Christ is the caller, and he calls with an effectual call, he calls with a permanent call, and that life is changed, and they, they submit to Christ for the first time in their life. Because of all of this, because God's power and sovereignty is behind it, this is why the gifts and calling are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty nine. If we were the ones making the call, they'd be revocable because we'd give up that call on Thursday. What message does Christ use to call his sheep or sinners unto himself? It is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his gospel. What is the gospel? It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, Romans 1.16 need to understand something here, that, that no other message under heaven has the salvific power to raise spiritually dead sinners to life. 
There is no salvific power, and when I say salvific, meaning power to save, there is no salvific power in the message of Jehovah Witnessism. There is no salvific power in the messages of popes and papacy. There is no salvific power in the message of Mormonism. There is no salvific power in the message of Muslimism. There is no salvific power in the message of Buddhism. There is no salvific power in the message of Hinduism or Sikhism or any other ism. There is salvific power only in the message of Jesus Christ, only in the message of the gospel. If a person, Paul says here, if a person teaches something other than the gospel, or if they teach a twisted version of the gospel, they are teaching a powerless persuasion that is not from the one who calls, not from the caller, not from Christ. Now, the Galatians had been called to Christ by Christ through the gospel preaching of Paul 18 months earlier. The Judaizers were, were trying to persuade and call them to their little pseudo-Christian circumcision cult with a false gospel that catered to the flesh by bolstering personal pride. Look at all the good works I'm doing. By keeping its adherents, anyone who believed their little false gospel, it kept all those who believed it free from persecution. Galatians chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Really what the Judaizers were preaching was a false gospel of, of man, false man-centered gospel that boosted pride and kept them safe from persecutors because nobody persecutes. People in the world do not persecute people who are trying to earn their way to salvation. They'll support you. But the moment you start saying, look, salvation isn't by our works, it's by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that's where all hell breaks loose. But if you say, well, it's Jesus plus what I do, the world's fine with that because the world thinks that it can earn its way. The world is under the power of Satan, who is the master of false gospels. Spinning them now as I speak. Got countless adherents. Now, false teachers are just as prevalent and treacherous today, just as the Judaizers were nearly 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Paul actually warned us about this whole phenomena in his second letter to Timothy. He wrote, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Um, if any of you are alert, you'll know that that's today. There will come, a t Paul talks about a time that will come where people who listen to the word will not put up with, will not tolerate sound doctrine. And he says, instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear, 2 Timothy 4.3. That's the NIV. There, Paul is saying there is a time coming where people aren't going to put up and tolerate sound doctrine, and they're going to appoint their own teachers to say what they want to hear. Is that not today? I can't think of a, a, a time in, in history when that's been more prevalent than today. Paul, were you talking about today? Yes. <laughs> this day has arrived. If you, if, you, if you know your Bible, 
If you study your Bible and read your Bible, you're, you're, you're in tune with Scripture and you have a, a, an ounce of discernment, you know that this is today. You know it. You know it. Pop on TBN. You read this out loud to the guy on TV. He won't be able to hear you. And if he did, he'd say, you have a spirit of religion. You need to repent. It's today. This day has arrived. It is here. The great number of ear-tickling false teachers is in our midst. Now, their persuasion, right, because it's a persuasion. It's not from the one who calls. Their persuasion today, it might be different from that of 2,000 years ago from that of the Judaizers, but it's still a persuasion. How do we spot them? Well, we talked about it a moment ago. We test a man's doctrine and teaching with Scripture. That's how. You could even use orthodoxy. You could even use church history, but Scripture is the highest authority. If their doctrine, if their teachings, and if you turn on TV, 99% of the time it doesn't. If it doesn't square with the word, then the guy on the TV is probably a false teacher. If he spurns correction, he is undoubtedly a false teacher. You have no way to correct him. I'm sure somebody's corrected him. But when they say forget about that, then they prove to be a false teacher. Here's another way to test. If... If a man or the man in the pulpit is more interested in saying what people want to hear rather than what they need to hear, he totally fits Paul's description in 2 Timothy 4.3. He is a people-pleasing, ear-tickling, false teacher. And, I, and I'm telling you this morning, this is everywhere. And I don't do this to, to stoke the flames of, of, of fear or to bolster my own pulpit or, or my own preaching ministry or the ministry of this church. It, it's, this isn't about a pride thing. It isn't about, well, we're better than them. It's us and them. That's not what we're talking about here. Somebody has to stand in a pulpit and warn people. I can name names if you'd like. I can name names in this community. And sometimes that's pretty helpful, but most Christians hate that today. I guess they hate Paul because he named names. This is, a, this is serious business, folks. It's serious business. Let's go to three. False teachers contaminate the church. Verse 9. Paul puts it like this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What's Paul doing? He's using a baking analogy to illustrate the contaminating effect false teachers have on churches. He likens their false teachings to leaven or yeast in a lump of dough. Now, if you know anything about baking, I know very little, but I know enough to know this. But if you know a little bit about baking or anything about baking, you know that it just takes a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast to raise up a whole lump. Right? You just put a little bit of yeast and spread it around in that dough, and an hour later, poof. Generally speaking, it takes about a teaspoon to make an entire loaf of bread. So it doesn't take much. They understand something about context here. The Israelites were not permitted to use leaven in their baking during Passover, which is also called what? The Feast of Unleavened Bread. They couldn't use it during that time. They couldn't even have it in their homes during that entire week. 
God said in Exodus 12, 14 to 20, you take out all the leaven, all the yeast, get rid of it during this time. You're going to eat flat bread, which is pretty tasty, by the way, especially with grilled fish, and that's how they did it. But you're not going to have any leaven in your homes. You're not going to have any leaven in your, your, you know, your baked goods. You're going to not have that. And you need to understand that in Scripture, leaven is sometimes used to depict evil. Right? Leaven's ability to spread and contaminate or raise a whole loaf. Same thing with evil. Evil spreads and, and, can, and it can start out small and become something very, very big. That's the idea. On one occasion, Jesus told his disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, King Herod at the time, Mark 8, 15. Leaven in that context refers to evil schemes. Jesus is saying, watch out for the evil schemes of the Pharisee and old King Herod. Watch out for their evil schemes. He's warning them. Paul's use of the Greek noun zume, leaven, that's how it translates into English. Leaven, in our text, it carries with it this evil connotation. Paul is saying that the, the Judaizers' evil, false teachings are like leaven in bread making. They can contaminate the entire church just as a little leaven contaminates a whole lump of dough. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, the Judaizers' leaven was works of the law. They added works of the law for justification, which contaminated the Galatian churches. Works of the law was their primary false teaching, their main heresy. It is the main heresy of Roman Catholicism. It's the main heresy of every other false religion in the world. Any religion that says you can earn your way with God into heaven, that is what we're talking about here. And that's what all religions teach. Even some perverted false versions of Christianity teach that. Well, in order to be truly saved, you've got to be baptized and believe in Jesus. That's no different than this error here. It's just a, a, you're using a different subject. They use circumcision then. Now you're saying baptism. You can't be a true believer and can't truly be in Christ unless, unless you take communion. You're adding things to faith. If we add works of the law for justification... Ultimately, what we're attempting to do is earn our way with God. We are trying to earn our salvation. Luther wrote, The most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man was the idea that somehow he could make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. That's a phenomenal quote. And, Keep in mind who he was, one of the early reformers. Who was he writing about? Probably the papacy, right? Probably against Roman Catholicism, because Roman Catholicism says you better have two parts in your justification, part Jesus and part works. And, and just so you know, they believe the exact same thing today. There's no difference in their theology from the Reformation. In fact, they had a counter-Reformation at the Council of Trent in which they kind of laid out their doctrinal beliefs. They still use them today. And one of the articles, one of their canons is that anyone who says that we are justified by faith alone, let him be anathema, cursed. I cited this a couple of days or a couple of weeks ago. 
So when people ask me, well, I, I know there's, or when they say, I know there's Roman Catholics who are saved, not if they believe Roman Catholic teachings. We keep giving this allowance, and, and, and what happens here, it's not, a, it's not a matter of taking grace or mercy away from people. We give this allowance, therefore we do not evangelize them. We're assuming that they're okay when they are, in fact, believing a false gospel. We need to be in the business of plucking Roman Catholics from the fires of hell. Not going along with it and saying, well, I think they're okay because there's some Jesus there. Some Jesus doesn't save. It's all Jesus or no Jesus. Well, I, you know, well, yeah, but they, they have Jesus. Yeah, they also have Mary, and they exalt her to a higher level. That ought to scare the tar out of you. And we just keep giving these allowances because there's enough Jesus there to pacify us when we ought to be preaching the true gospel to Roman Catholics. And Roman Catholics are more receptive to it than you think because they are treated with such ignorance by that movement. The priests are banking on them. The papacy is banking on their ignorance. And the moment they start to get educated, they walk away from Roman Catholicism just as some of you in this room have walked away from charismania. Don't give the allowance. There's a false gospel being preached there. Luther's talking about it here in his statement. You know, and this is precisely what the Judaizers were attempting to do, what, what Luther says here. They were trying to make themselves good enough through works of the law to deserve to live with an all-holy God. And they were teaching the Galatians this pernicious heresy and contaminating these churches just as a little leaven contaminates the whole lump False teachers, here's another thing you need to understand as we get closer to the end here. False teachers rarely, if ever, go big at the beginning. They're smarter than that. They don't just often just come right out with it. Right? This is how Satan works. He masquerades. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Disguises. And false teachers are under his persuasion, and they disguise. They start small and work incrementally up. They don't just come right out. Jesus isn't God, because if they do that, they're thrown out the door. But if they start by saying, I wonder if he's God, and then begin to reason that out, with their perverted, twisted version. False teachers use a little leaven at first, a little. They spread little contradictions. They spread little lies, little deceptions. And if the people are apathetic and passive, or if they're overly impressionable or impressionable at all, because we're not supposed to be impressionable, if they're impressionable, what do they do? they will, over time, kick it up a notch like George Costanza on his way to the Hamptons. Remember that episode? It's one of the best. <laughs> this is what they do. They start small, and if the people are like, oh, yeah, that sounds kind of good, then they increase, and they increase, and they increase, and over time, pow. I actually saw this happen at a church. It wasn't a church that I was involved with, but I've seen it happen at a church. One of the pastors, and I use that title loosely, one of the pastors began by simply questioning an elder about his church's long-held beliefs. There was a point of doctrine that the church had held since the beginning of that church, 
And he started questioning that long-held belief, one particular doctrine. Why do we affirm this doctrine, he said. Other churches have a different view of it. And by the way, there are a lot of resources that present a, a different angle on this particular doctrine, and I think they're very, very helpful. In fact, uh, we ought to spend some time walking through these resources together. It's a very important subject, you know, I think. He's telling an elder. And then over time, he was eventually invited to several elder meetings so he could share his concerns, so he could share his perspective with the elder board. Let me just say this, if you want to share your concerns, that's fine. It's a church and we have that kind of transparency. But if you come at me or the elders with some nonsense, you're not going to get my ear or their ears. It's not happening. And in this particular scenario, it was very tragic because this elder didn't just weather those concerns. He was like, oh, yeah. Like, as soon as he started doing that, I'm thinking, why is he on the elder board? Because this issue was that important, this subject. So he gets one elder to listen to him, and he's very, very talented, very, he has great oratory skills, he's very persuasive. He gets that elder to listen, and then that, that elder goes to the board and gets him meetings with the board so he can present his case. But he did start very, very small at first. And during those meetings, he uses his oratory skill, his persuasive skills, his communication talent to now begin to make the subject seem so vitally important to the health and future of the church that we have to deal with it, fellas. So he starts off with, what do you think about this to, man, if we don't change direction here with this particular doctrine, we're going to be in big trouble. And he also, at the same time, persuaded the elders to start reading the resources that he was providing. He winds up debating the elders. And that's one thing to debate the elders, but then he got the elders to the point of debating one another. And they debated one another until they all together reached a consensus and adopted his error. And then what happened from there? He and the elders went out and influenced key leaders in the church, and those key leaders influenced non-key leaders, and the non-key leaders influenced other non-key leaders, and the cycle continued and continued and continued, and two years later, the entire church is contaminated with one pastor, one false teacher's error. They even changed their bylaws. What am I telling you? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little. Just a little. And you know, I think the ultimate kind of false teaching and all false teachings really start at one point, and that's, that's they have one particular thing they're doing up front, and that is the undermining of Scripture. All errors can be tethered to that. If you have a low view of Scripture, there's no telling where you'll go with it. If you have a high view of Scripture, you'll do the right thing. When somebody attacks one particular doctrine, they're, they're not really attacking one particular doctrine. They're attacking the sufficiency, the perfection of God's Word. And that's what happened in this church. And this church, 
in my opinion, has lost all relevance because now it teaches falsely. It's not even a church anymore. Closing. It is the responsibility of the elders of a church to watch over the flock and to expel any wolves. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. It is the responsibility of the elders of a church to watch over the flock and to expel and eliminate wolves. That's one of the main responsibilities of elders. Now we know that the Galatian churches had elders because Acts chapter 14 verse 23 tells us so. It says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, and this is, they're talking about the churches at Lystra and the churches in Galatia. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. These churches that Paul wrote to had elders. My question is, where were they and what were they doing during this dangerous time? Where are they? Were they sitting on their hands? Were they taking a hiatus? Were they adopting this false gospel? It was their responsibility to teach and preserve the gospel, to combat doctrinal error, to combat theological error. It was their responsibility to expose and expel false teachers. It was their job to do it, but where were they? <clears throat> if the Galatian elders had done their job, the Judaizers would have been gone, and I'm not sure that Paul would have written this epistle. Do you ever stop to think about that? I know hypotheticals are pretty much useless, but just think about that. What does his letter do? It corrects, it, it exposes wolves, it corrects false doctrine, it presents the true gospel, it does everything that an elder is supposed to do, and yet he has to write this, which tells us that the elders were, were, were they on vacation? Were the Judaizers too much for them to handle? Maybe. Where were they? You know, when, when, when Paul wrote Galatians, he was doing the elder's job. He was. We have this epistle because the elders of those churches either failed to do their duty or because they were overwhelmed and couldn't meet the challenges or because they were still pretty green and needed Paul's instruction. Maybe God inspired Paul to write this beautiful epistle, which is essential, I think. Maybe he inspired him to write it for one of those reasons or maybe for none of those reasons at all. I'm just glad we have it. But you've got to wonder... Where were the elders during this tumultuous, dangerous time? Why were they not grabbing the Judaizers by their belt loops and throwing them through the front door? I don't know what they were doing. Maybe because the church was less than two years old, these elders just weren't quite up to, uh, quite up to snuff or up to par. Maybe that's it because, you know, they planted the church and then you're appointing elders. Well, there's not a whole lot of time for them to grow and develop, but in, in any case, Paul and Barnabas appointed them and they had elders and it's elders' responsibility to do this. Maybe the elders read this letter along with the rest of the church and said, oh, this is what we're supposed to be doing. I guess we better... Kick it up a notch like Costanza on his way to the Hamptons. Kick these jabronis out of here. 
I don't know exactly why it's playing out. I'm just happy that we have the letter. I'm glad it was written. It's invaluable. And I'm also glad that we have godly elders here at RHC. I am. I just told you a story about a church that's not that far from here that had elders that were willing to listen to a false teacher and over time adopt his teachings and then spread his false teaching through a whole church. And now you have a totally screwed up church. We don't have that here. Praise God. Amen. Come on. Seriously. We have faithful godly elders at RHC we have since the beginning who have faithfully watched over us for many years, me included. They have protected us. This isn't something that we focus on very often. It's not something that we celebrate, but we should because it is a reflection of God's goodness to us. I'm thankful for how God has kept our elders grounded in the truth, totally on track with the gospel. There has been zero deviation from sound biblical doctrine. There's been zero departure from historical orthodoxy. There's been zero diminishing of the gospel since the very beginning, nearly 10 years ago. This is something to applaud God for. Do we understand? And it, it may, maybe you're visiting today and you belong to a church like I'm describing. Tell First, thank the Lord, but tell your pastors and your elders how much you appreciate them and to keep fighting the good fight. This isn't a, you know, we boast about somebody staying married their whole life. It's almost boastworthy to applaud someone who stayed in the faith their whole life or a church that's kept the truth the whole life of that church. I mean, this is a milestone. This is an accomplishment in this day and age. It is. If your eyes are open and your ears are open to what's going on, you know this to be true. There's that much deviation today. And, and Scripture even talks about a great deception toward the end of time where, where, where many whom we thought were brothers and sisters will be deceived. We're seeing that today, aren't we? Are we not seeing that today? People I served side by side with going all in on gay marriage. Huh? Can we even call it marriage? Pe people that you serve alongside of who are, who are becoming woke and slamming their own ethnicity for being white. White on white hate. It boggles the mind. People from the pulpits preaching reparations. Huh? It's everywhere. You know, God has not only preserved the precious gospel at RHC, He has graciously, very kindly, very mercifully increased and deepened our understanding of it through many, many years of, of faithful teaching and preaching. Hasn't he? He has. I'm not tooting my horn. I'm tooting the horn of these men who have served you. Not just me. Who cares about me? Them. Them. 